Mr. MacArthur uh, was, he looked like Santa Claus. Like, um, even on his profile, his pic had a picture of him as the mall Santa. He didn't strike me as someone who was going to kill me. Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing multiple murders. The details may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning, so please do not listen if you're sensitive to this topic. Today's story is about Canadian serial killer Bruce MacArthur. Are you familiar with this one? I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am. Yes. I figured. <laughs> um, so this vile man would end up leaving his evil mark on the Toronto, Canada area, and even more so in the district of Church and Wellesley, also known as Toronto's Gay Village. The district of Church and Wellesley was known by many as a safe place for LGBTQ people to go for safety and community. This is the place where the Pride Parade would happen and people across the country would come to Toronto and just like come to seek that really popular district mm-hmm. that had acceptance and comfort. Right. Like everybody across the world even would go there for this reason. Right. The investigation into this crime was only launched after three men were reported missing. It would take a whopping six years for police to discover and solve the mystery behind the disappearances of these men. This investigation at first was referred to as Project Houston. Inspector Hank Insinga joined this project slash investigation in late 2012, and much of this information and detail was reported by him. Before the disappearances even started happening, in October of 2001, Bruce, who was 50 at the time, attacks a man midday inside the victim's apartment in the gay village. MacArthur strikes the man numerous times with a metal pipe. The victim, who has advertised in publications as a, quote, male hustler, calls 911 and is taken to the hospital. MacArthur goes to police headquarters to say he may have hurt someone and doesn't know why he did it. So in other words, he turned himself in. From January to April 2003, MacArthur pleads guilty to assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm in the 2001 attack. He later receives a conditional sentence of two years and three years probation. As part of his probation, he is barred from an area of the city that includes the gay village and from spending time with, quote, male prostitutes. He is also ordered to have a sample of DNA taken and added to the database. He later obtains a pardon for this conviction. In Canada. Right? Canada. Duh. (laughs) This is the incident that would prove to really start to escalate Bruce's need for control and BDSM. This is a violent man who just beat somebody with a metal pipe. Right? Mm -hmm. After he started to experiment and explore and find himself, he was also becoming more of a dominant person who wanted to explore having power over his victims. This came out from time to time, especially when these men would go missing. Weird. Right? But with him being barred from the gay village, he felt like they were trying to keep him away from something that he had felt like he had just came into after so many years of being held back. He had to hide who he was for many years and was closeted before this. He was even married. Yeah, and I think, like, he had kids and... Yeah. I left them out of this, but he did have kids, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he finally came out to his wife, Mm -hmm. and that's when he left, and he started to explore, you know, being gay. Um... But also after that marriage, he was really starting to get into S&M and BDSM. That being said, he was also viewed as a very soft-spoken, nice dude. Mm -hmm. Police also ended up saying that he was the type of person that when they talked to and interviewed, they thought that, like, there's no way this guy did anything of this magnitude. Just because of, like, how he carried himself and how he talked, they didn't think that he was capable of it. 
Bruce MacArthur was like the mall Santa Claus sometimes. And, you know, he went to church and he was very religious. But like many others, he lived a double life. Pretty much every serial killer that I can think of off the top of my head had some sense of normalcy in, at some time or some aspect of their lives. He's, he's not special. He's not special at all. My gosh. So Skanda Navaratnam went missing in September of 2010. He was a 40-year-old immigrant from Sri Lanka. Skanda was last seen leaving a bar that was called Zippers near Church Street on September 6th in 2010. Zippers, that's, uh, I like it. <laughs> Zippers has since then been shut down. <laughs> um, but he was reportedly seen with an unknown man. Also interesting is that there were people who said that he and Bruce dated in the past and they were also friends on Facebook. So the reason why I think that is interesting is just that, you know, if the police had done a proper investigation from the beginning, this would be somebody that you would look into seriously. Mm -hmm. Somebody who dated him, had him on Facebook, and then also something that I'll get into soon it should have been done by, like, then. Oh, absolutely. And I honestly, I think when they were at the point to name this investigation, they named it Houston. After the Houston, I think we have a problem. Yeah, probably. And you know what? It was only called the Houston Project for the first three disappearances, mm -hmm. and then they changed it. So right now it's only a missing persons project. But they didn't even link them together until all three were missing and they're like okay they're all gay they're all from the gay village i think we have a problem here yeah yeah so between december 2010 and october 2012 two more men were reported missing the first man was reported missing december 29th of 2010 his name was abdul bazir fazi he was 42 years old and was a husband and a father he also secretly visited gay bars from time to time the second man was reported missing in October 2012 and also led sort of a double life. This man was 52-year-old Afghan immigrant Majid Kahan. He was too a husband and a father. He was also a machine operator at a printing company in Mississauga. His car is later found abandoned in Toronto in the area of St. Clair Ave East and Mount Pleasant Road. MacArthur kills Fazi on or about the day he went missing, according to the statement of facts. Police had no idea what happened to these men. This is when the Houston Project was created, but they just didn't really know what to do, I guess. But in 2012, they received a lead that they desperately needed. Crazily enough, it came from Switzerland. So, and I feel like, I don't know if you're, you get into it or not, but... A lot of people thought that because these were all um, immigrants, um, minorities, that the police didn't take it seriously That's add on that, sure. that they were gay. Um, mm -hmm. It possibly made the police very uncomfortable, and for whatever reason, they didn't take it as seriously as they, they start to. That is for sure the plate holding the, the story. Like, this is fully what we will be getting into, mm -hmm. because it is not... In, uh, this is kind of what you do when you feel strongly about something. It's like it's not speculation; it's fact. Yeah. And there are facts to support that the police dropped the ball in multiple areas. And I think that and did a horrible job. I'll say it. Yeah. And there are police officers that admit that at the time of the Switzerland investigators reaching out, they referred to their information as coming from an informant. This informant was part of an online cannibal fetish community. Gross. I just don't even know. <laughs> there, I mean, ugh, there are so many fetish communities, but. That is, I know. It's like cannibal what the hell? one or vampirism. It's all just. Yeah, it's really weird. Wow. The informant was chatting with a man going by the online name of John Jacob. This John Jacob had told the informant that he had killed and eaten a brown-skinned male from the gay village in Toronto. That wasn't enough on its own for the informant to report this information, but he did feel compelled to look into Toronto news and see if any men fitting the description were missing. 
That is when he's seen the missing poster for Skanda. Just a side note, the same informant actually had given Switzerland authorities information previously on another cannibal and serial killer in Slovakia by the name of Matij Kirkel. I don't think he was like paid by the police. Like that's not the kind of informant he was. Mm -hmm. I think he was part of this online fetish site. And when people took it to the next level, he reported it. But like, I don't know. uh, It's just really crazy. And there are people in those groups that are looking out for um, people that are over and above. Because honestly, there have been quite a few people on these fetish, especially the cannibalism ones, that are looking for people that want to be eaten or that want to be murdered and want to be tortured. I just feel like if you are so desperate to fulfill a fetish and a fantasy that you will join an online community and out yourself, you've got a problem. You can't stop yourself. No, and I mean, I'm glad that there are these online forums because there are thousands of people on them that have all of these twisted thoughts and desires and very small percentage of them actually go through with it. But this guy, like, they're part of it. gives them, like, an outlet, right, instead of going out and trying to figure out their own ways to talk about it and communicate and fulfill some the mental part of the fantasy is enough for most of these people. Yeah, I just I can't understand it. If you can stop yourself from killing somebody, you should be able to I guess tweak yourself to not be interested in cannibalism, I guess is how I feel. I'm and- I'm behind you 100%, but it's just one of those <laughs> other uh I don't even know if we can call it a kink that people are entitled Fetish. to as long as they're not hurting anybody, which the online people, generally speaking, are there and not hurting anybody. But what are they, what are they doing? They're like, you want me to eat your toe? And the other they're, person's like, yeah, eat my toe. So <laughs> I actually watched something a couple of days ago, and I, I can't remember what it was, but they're they're on there and they're actually talking about their fantasy and planning it out with somebody else on the other end of that connection, but both know that this is never going to happen. And the small percentages of them, do you really want to do this? Like, I'm. do you really want to do this? You know what I mean? Like, they're actually testing each other. Yeah. I'll do it if you will. That's exactly. Exactly. Send them a little baggie full of skin or something. Yeah. Does that count? Nasty. Anyway, this guy, you know, he's at the point, this informant, he is now pretty much reported two serial killers. He doesn't know that Bruce MacArthur is one yet. Well, sorry, John Jacob. <laughs> but at what point do you just leave the fucking group? You've True, met but two serial killers now. Thankfully, he's stuck, or stuck around. I don't know. It's just, it should be a little harder to be a part of a cannibal fetish group, I guess. Maybe, that shit should be on the dark web. Maybe, totally. But <laughs> maybe it was hard for him, and maybe that's why he was on it. Hmm. You never know. No it's, judgment. Oh, I have judgment for I'm just cannibalism. in a very non-judgy mood today. It's very unlike <laughs> just, myself. Yeah. Like, no judgment. We have moods. He, like to, he likes to eat people. <laughs> uh, okay. Because the prior details he provided rang true, so he already found one serial killer, the informant had credibility and Switzerland authorities took him seriously. The disappearance investigation started looking like a possible murder investigation, right? Well, Project Houston wasn't filled with the homicide squad, so at this time these reports are discounted and the investigation is still not taken seriously enough to be considered a murder investigation. Switzerland's like, yo, y'all got a problem. They're like, nah. Cannibalism doesn't really happen. I'm sorry, did you say a brown-skinned gay dude? (laughs) Sounds like a disappearance and not a murder to me. Like, that, what are you, But another user on the cannibal fetish site went by the name Silver Fox Toronto. Through police investigation, they wanted to know if the Silver Fox would know anything. So they did look into it a little bit. You know, he's in Toronto and he is part of the same weird website or community. In 2013, they were able to identify Silver Fox as Bruce MacArthur. 
Now, if I was an investigator, I think I would probably put two and two together pretty quickly. You know, Toronto is a big place, but cannibal fetishes don't seem that common. And they believe that somebody on this site killed a man in the gay community. And now they have another man, a part of the same group. I don't know. It's just really sus. Mm -hmm. And if they had investigated that first disappearance properly, they would have known that his X was Bruce MacArthur, friends on Facebook, and now the same Bruce MacArthur is on a cannibal site oh, yeah. where it's saying that this scandal has been eaten. The, I mean, the connections were there from day one. Yeah. After the three disappearances, this could have been done. Yeah. But no. So yeah, the ball was majorly dropped here. Like, like it, in my opinion, it fully could have been oh. solved and absolutely finished. So they didn't look into Bruce MacArthur much more at all, and he certainly was not arrested. Bruce was viewed as a witness and nothing more. After a few questions, he was free to go and police were at a dead end. A dead end caused by the fact that they were there. Yeah. They were there. Yeah. So there's nowhere else to go. In April of 2014, the Houston Project ends. <sighs> like, what did they, whatever. <laughs> did they give up? Canada. Canada. In August 2015, men in the district of Church and Wellesley start to go missing once again. 50-year-old Iranian refugee Sarush Mahmoudi was reported missing by his family in August of 2015. He was closeted and also lived a bit of a double life. According to the statement of facts, Bruce killed Sarush on or about August 15th. Investigators still weren't quite sure what they were looking at, but apparently the idea of a possible serial killer was starting to come to light for them at this time. <laughs> Just now. All right. Maybe they're connected. <sighs> yeah. June 20th, 2016, Toronto police bring Bruce in for questioning after a man called 911 claiming Bruce strangled him in the back of his caravan during an otherwise consensual encounter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Police interviewed Bruce and he denied everything and they kind of just let him go. Uh, so I figured why not listen to a little bit of this interrogation? You know, it's pretty pretty chill they don't really grill him that much they're just like what's your side of it tell us your side to me it almost sounds like they're saying like he says this but if you don't say that you know mm -hmm. you can go that's right and it's totally you can tell it's making them uncomfortable this to talk to a gay old man, man. about a consensual yeah. encounter with another gay man they don't want to hear it it's just so <laughs> clear it's yeah terrible and it's more awkward near the beginning, but I'm not playing the beginning. Um, but let's let's listen to this clip now. So, sir, if you would like to uh, provide us with your account of what occurred uh, earlier this evening. Well, I met. We talked about going for dinner. And I, he said he needed to take a shower, so I said I'd meet him at the Tim Hortons at Finch and Bathurst. And um, so he arrived, and um, we were going to have sex. And he suggested do it in the back of his truck, since it hadn't been used yet. It was a brand new truck. I said, well, there's more room in the back of my van. So we went to my van. Um, and we started um, kissing. And I put my hand down his pants, and he wanted me to squeeze his penis. But then he said he wanted harder to pinch it to pinch and pinch and pinch as hard as I could. So I did. Um, and he got aroused by that. And um, so then I thought, okay, he likes it rough. So I put my hand to his throat. And just for a few seconds, because he before that he, he's very strong, he just completely turned around and grabbed me by the throat. He said, and he said, now I'm going to show you what I'm going to do to you. And he had me by the throat to the point that I couldn't breathe. So I put my hands like up in the air like a surrender because I couldn't talk. And that's when he finally let go. 
and then he jumped out of the car. He said, um, I don't want to see you again. So I sat there because I was kind of out of breath. And I thought he was getting in his car to leave because he started the car and it was running. I could hear it running because he was parked right beside me. And um, the next thing I heard him say, it's 911 or whatever. And so I thought, oh gosh, he's calling the cops. And so um, I got out and then he got out and, and walked around and was taking my license plates and um, that. And so um, that's when I got kind of uptight and I got in the car and I drove off. And then you indicated that immediately he then put his hands around your neck, is that he, right? He quickly, he was like, he's very strong. Before you know it, he just had completely swung around and was facing me on pushing me down and his hands were around my neck. Okay. Like, like really quick. So there's a brief struggle. Yeah, well, that, well, I couldn't struggle with him after once he had his hands around my neck. I was, he was very strong. Okay. So yeah, in my opinion, the police set him up multiple times to kind of build up his story of this other man was stronger than him, and he was the one who actually was scared. And I mean, a really good point on that is that he says that he got uptight and he left. He he drove away. He, even though the other guy was calling 911, he didn't think I should stay here. And, like, obviously that guy's not threatening to you because he's the one calling 911. What are you talking about? Yeah. And he leaves, and then he actually ends up turning himself into police later. Well, why didn't you come in sooner? Do you know what he says? Oh, I actually didn't know where any um yeah, right. police stations were. I couldn't find one. Fuck off. Ooh. The... His description of the encounter, (laughs) you could tell, made the investigators uncomfortable to be listening to it. They just wanted to hear his side and be done with it. Okay, you're good to go. And Bruce MacArthur had obviously planned his side to build off of, oh, well, he wanted rough things and he liked them and then all of a sudden choking too much for me he turned around and choked me way harder Mm -hmm. no so you know we listened to bruce's side i'm not buying it but now let's listen to the survivors version of events uh that day it was agreed that i would uh submit to his experience that had been indicated on his profiles his his big things as i know them were um, he liked to find submissives, find their um, buttons that he could push, find what their edge was, was, yes, and then push them over it. The fear that I started to feel uncomfortable that day for the first time was I couldn't breathe. That's, I have memories of, of not being able to catch my breath throughout the beginning, um, early on. And that, um, that uh, made me uncomfortable and, and put the rest, first red flag up that I, that I wanted to go home because he wasn't, I felt, respecting my limits. The shortness of breath was from specific acts he was, he was doing to me. Um, he was basically uh, raping my throat. Um, He was uh, uh, cutting off my airway. Um, And I was physically to the point where I was giving panic and I was panicked. But in that type of play, there's some expectation of trying to find that area where it's it's close to the edge. Um, but at that point, it was, that's the only memory I have from it is that just this overall, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't breathe. What I'm understanding is that he was being basically orally raped mm-hmm. to the point where he couldn't breathe. I think that's when he was first starting to freak out. Mm-hmm. Why don't we bite? 
I think it like like what he explained. He they did meet on like a BDSM kind of site, and it's like where do you find that limit? And I don't. I think that that's when he started telling him like, what the fuck? But I do believe that there was a moment where Bruce MacArthur would have went past that boundary to the point where um, this victim lost consciousness because later on you can you actually find out that Bruce had photos of him passed out. It is just so, so, so horrible. It is. It's messed up. Very. So in April 2017, continuing on this timeline, Selim Essen, who was a 44-year-old Turkish citizen, also went missing. He was last seen alive April 15th. He didn't have a permanent address and was reported missing two weeks after the last reported appearance. Police started to feel the pressure as Salim had a group of people pushing for answers on his disappearance. There is a pattern growing of immigrant and or vulnerable people going missing that typically had no one to ask questions or vouch for their disappearance. So now at least there were a couple of people to push. Hmm. Push the police. In June 2017, there is another missing man. 49-year-old Andrew Kinsman is reported missing by his friends. Andrew's disappearance did not go unnoticed as he was a volunteer to the community and his absence was loud and clear. And he also had a lot of experience in the queer organizations and his community was large as he worked with a lot of people in the LGBTQ community. Not to mention, he was a white Canadian man. Police, in my opinion, started taking things seriously because of race and status. That's just sad, but it is so true, in my opinion. But anyway. It is. That's exactly exactly what changed the investigation. Now you've got a white Canadian man missing, gay or not. He's white Canadian and the police are, Mm -hmm. now they're paying attention. The effort and time that they put into it after Andrew is now missing, it's just, it's like, it's great that it happened. It's night and day, It should have happened way sooner. Yeah, well, it shouldn't have got to Andrew. It shouldn't have got to Andrew, exactly. Um, Yeah, sorry. But anyway, Andrew was last seen alive near his home in Cabbage Town, which is north of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Police later confirmed that Andrew was killed on or about June 26, 2017. In August of 2017, Toronto police launched Project Prism, looking into the last two disappearances. They also get information from the previous project, Project Houston. Right. They gathered all their surveillance footage of the area. It wasn't until August 2017 that police had a chance to sit down and start looking through all of the footage. Police admittedly said they didn't really know what they were looking for, but once they started watching, a red Dodge Caravan started to stick out to them. This vehicle had circled the block twice around the time that Andrew went missing around 2 p.m. on June 26th. They're able to follow the footage of the red caravan a couple of blocks down the street until one of the still images of the video is clear enough for them to get a good view and description of the vehicle. Meaning, you know, how it looked. Was there any rust? What did the tires and rims look like? Can we get a year on this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, they then took this and decided to go to the registries and get a printout of every 2004 to 2006 Red Dodge Caravan in the city of Toronto. Wow, what what effort that right? would take to get every freaking 2004 to 2006 Red Dodge Caravan in the city. And I mean, Toronto is a huge city. Mm -hmm. Ontario is the biggest province in our country, and Toronto is the biggest city in our country. But you know what? Even though it's like, this seems like so much more work compared to what they've been doing, but (laughs) it was only, they only got 6,000 vehicles out of Mm it. They only had to go looking into 6,000 vehicles. Like, come on. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it obviously took this white Canadian going missing for police to start doing everything in their power to see who took him. And so. and I mean, put that into perspective. You remember um, when they were looking for that white Elantra in Idaho, that was over 22,000 vehicles yeah. they were sorting through. right? And it didn't take them long to find a person of interest from no. that information. 
So exactly. six thousand seems pretty, pretty Team, reasonable. I could do that by myself. Right, yeah. I could get through that. Especially you've got other, manner. you've got other information to go on to. Totally. So they're going off of the vehicle information, but also Andrew had on his calendar that he had an appointment named just quote Bruce. And there it is. Right? And out of the 6,000 vehicles, five of them were registered to somebody named Bruce. One of the men named Bruce was none other than Bruce MacArthur. What a shock. Mm. Not. So now we have Silver Fox, a.k.a. Bruce MacArthur, the man who is part of an online cannibal fetish community who police talked to two years ago, and I mean, even before that, talked to him, mm-hmm. and it's looking pretty suspicious. I'm also guessing police were really starting to kick themselves at this time, and they were probably already planning their out. Like, oh, how sure. the frick are we going to get out of this one? This? Yeah. yeah. So, days following the announcement of this new task force, Bruce actually gets rid of his red Dodge Caravan, probably because they were dumb enough to put that out there. Um, but luckily, police are able to snatch it from the wrecking yard. In November 2017, the vehicle was examined and the forensics team did their thing and there was a significant amount of blood in the back of the caravan. This blood is later identified as belonging to Andrew Kinsman. With this information, they now had evidence of a murder. But not only is it evidence of a murder, but evidence connecting Bruce to the murder. Instead of arresting Bruce, police decide to keep him under close surveillance. In December 2017, police were able to get a warrant to secretly enter Bruce's apartment in the middle of the night and clone his computer. To do this, they needed so many things and so much preparation. For one, they had to nail down Bruce's roommate's schedule and Bruce's schedule. They also needed a locksmith ready to go at a moment's notice, and they really just had to prepare to get in and get out. It was the 7th of December when they were able to get into his apartment and clone about 45% of his computer before their surveillance team actually let them all know that Bruce is coming back early and they all had to get out of there. Hmm. Luckily, in that 45%, police received thousands of photos, emails, thumbnails, and everything in between. Police had to comb through all of this information, and it wasn't until five weeks later when they finally found out that Bruce made files of his victims. <laughs> he had taken photos of some of the victims while he was camping with them and hanging out with them. So some of them he would date, you right. know. Some of the photos were of Bruce and male victims seemingly unconscious. One of those men was actually the man that called police when Bruce choked him in the back of that caravan. This man had no idea he was ever unconscious like that to be photographed and not even remember or know that it happened. The photos also uncovered two more victims that hadn't even been reported missing. As Bruce took post-mortem photos of his victims, the only way police could identify one of the victims was to release the photo Bruce had taken of him. The photo is disturbing as the person portrayed is obviously dead and has been through something before that, you know, but they had to. And, you know, they, they say that Toronto did this move and that it was pretty ballsy, like to put a photo like that out in public, but it did work. The man was 37 year old Sri Lankan refugee Karish Nakumar, who was missing approximately as of December, 2015. According to the statement of facts, he would have been killed on or about January 6th of 2016. The other victim who had never been reported missing was 43-year-old Dean Lesowick. Dean was a resident of the shelter system in Toronto and sadly had no one to report him missing. Dean is suspected to have died on or about April 23rd of 2016. So these unknown victims at the time were kind of filling in the gaps and showing that Bruce didn't really take a break. Mm -hmm. I mean, like he was going, he was just now finding, he was good at what he did. He wanted people who were like immigrants or people who didn't have a lot of people to report them missing. And there were a couple that he was so successful on that nobody even knew. On January 18th of 2018, police are monitoring Bruce as he arrives home around 10 a.m. with an unknown male. 
The day was a Thursday and police had planned to arrest Bruce on Saturday after surveillancing him. But as he had a man with him behind closed doors, they had to act fast and 18 minutes after he first got home, they went and arrested him. He was then charged for two counts of murder at this time. Are you going to say what they found when they went into his apartment? Bruce's ninth victim would be found inside tied to his bed. This victim has never been publicly named, but police confirmed that he was tied to the bed with a hood over his head. Mm -hmm. Though I will say that by the time police got in there, apparently this man got the hood off of his head. He had shaken it off. Right. Um, and Bruce only made files for who he planned to kill or who he had killed. And the only other file made was for this person. So there is no doubt yeah. in my mind or investigators' minds that this was set to be his next victim. For sure. For fully. sure. Like this was planned, premeditated, this man was going to die. Yeah. So they now had Bruce in custody, but they still did not have their bodies. Police got warrants for all the places that Bruce had lived over the years. He was really into landscaping and planting. On one property on Mallory Crescent in Toronto, police found pretty much all of the bodies. A couple lived there and owned the house, but they also had a vacation property elsewhere, allowing for Bruce to access the property whenever they were away. They were rather surprised when police arrived with a search warrant and kicked them out of their home. It was a really cold winter this year, and the ground was freezing. They brought in canines, and the canine gave an indication to a planter on the back of Mallory Crescent. Officers didn't know if the dog was indicating to the planter or the ground underneath. The planter was frozen solid, and on this day, they seized three frozen planters. Once the planters started to thaw out, the smell of decomposition was so bad, officers just knew there was going to be something in there. Officers actually ended up moving the planters to the morgue just based on the smell. Mm -hmm. They sat at the morgue for a couple more days so that they could fully thaw out. Um, but before they did thaw out, they actually ended up doing an x-ray on one of them. And even though the ice was still thick, they were able to make out a rib cage. Yeah. Ugh. These are big planters, too. Yeah, yeah. Once they were able to get into all the planters, they confirmed that the majority of seven of the eight victims were in the planters. Unreal. Could you imagine being the owner oh of those planters of that house? Just Yeah. Like, those were there the whole time. And. Like, my kid was playing in the dirt in that one. Are you kidding me? Like. And ugh. the smell. You know, in the in the summer, yeah, because some of those had to have been there for a while. And they you're telling definitely me, were planted in the spring, summer, fall months, yeah. for sure, for sure. So, I mean, what did they? Uh, I don't know. It's it's disturbing. Up. <laughs> Bruce would also keep items from the victims and even their hair. I, have you seen photos of the hair that he kept? No. To me, it looks like not just like a lock of hair. It looks like he sculpted them. Sculpted them a bit, yeah. Mm. So as police would identify a victim, they would just add a charge to Bruce's list. Um, that investigator Hank Insinga actually ended up saying that they would pull him back into court, read him his next charge, send him back every single time. Right. March 6th of 2018, the Star reveals that an internal police misconduct investigation has begun in connection with a past police interaction with Bruce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Investigator mm -hmm. in, yeah, right? But, I mean, there's so much more wrong with just this one past encounter with yeah. him. It's so unfair a little bit, but I'll get into it. Investigator Insinga tells the Star he initiated a complaint into, quote, concerning behavior of officers who potentially did not do what they were supposed to have done, but does not provide any detail. Convenient. The incident is later revealed to be the 2016 choking report that resulted in no charges. March 22, 2018, in the wake of mounting questions about past handling of the MacArthur investigation, the Toronto Police Board commissions an external review of how Toronto police handle missing persons cases. 
though the probe cannot directly examine the MacArthur case because of the ongoing investigation and looming trial. The external investigation is supported by Chief Saunders, who had already launched an internal investigation of missing persons cases because of how poorly it was handled. April 3rd, 2018, Toronto police withdraw an application to participate in the 2018 Pride Parade one day after Pride Toronto and a coalition of LGBTQ groups called on police to rescind their request to take part. Citing anger and shock about the deaths in the gay village and, quote, insufficient investigations into missing persons cases, the groups said that the damaged relationship between the community and police quote, cannot be mended through a parade, which is fair. Totally fair. May 2018, Toronto police complete their four-month forensic examination of MacArthur's 19th floor Thorncliffe Park apartment building. They seized 1,800 exhibits and took more than 18,000 photographs. The probe is officially the largest forensic investigation in Toronto's history. In June 2018, Ontario Court of Appeal Justice Gloria Epstein is tapped to lead an independent review of how Toronto police review missing persons cases. She retires from Ontario's highest court to conduct the review. The review will examine whether the probes into the alleged MacArthur victims' disappearances could have been tainted by systemic bias or discrimination. Which, I mean... And even the other inquiry that they couldn't look into MacArthur because it was an ongoing investigation, I still wonder, like, they could still look into the missing reports from the men that were kind of glazed over, not looked into. Yeah, and by the looks of it, they did look into it um, as much as they could. And then I think that they, they changed so many processes anyway knowing that what they had done was yeah messed up yeah and they i mean they did there are some that were uh disciplined for sure reprimanded there was one yeah <laughs> in july 2018 toronto police resume an extensive search behind 53 mallory crescent involving cadaver dogs and they locate human remains just hours in Human remains are found virtually every day of the nine-day excavation of what police called a compost pile at the back of the property in a forested ravine. Hmm. The remains are identified as those of Kehan, the sole alleged MacArthur victim whose remains had not yet been recovered. Right. His are the only remains not buried inside of large planters on this same lease side property. Wonder why? Maybe he was just in a hurry with him or something. Maybe it was done in a colder month and or he couldn't. Maybe possibly he had the planters didn't have any more room. No more planters. Yeah, true. Mm. So, investigator Edsinga says at a press conference announcing the identification of Kahan's remains that there's no evidence to suggest there are other remains to be found or any indication that there are more victims because people were worried that they were just going to keep finding more and more and more. And, um, but they're pretty much saying, like, no, I, we believe that this is it. Obviously, they had the files, so they were pretty confident. And, and the public. If they, if there was anybody else missing, they would have taken that information to the police at the height of this. They probably were. Yeah. Anybody else missing, they were probably like, my son went missing That's in right. 2014. And, and quite possibly they looked into it and ruled it out. Yeah. Because at this point when they're finding remains, not only are the police taking it more seriously, but now the media and the public is aware and they're watching them. So they are taking... Holding them accountable. That's right. Yeah. Totally. In October 2018, Toronto Police provide details of its dedicated missing persons unit formed after receiving criticism for how they handled this case. In court, Bruce MacArthur appears in person for the first time in months and waives his preliminary hearing, sending his case directly to trial. In February 2019, Bruce was sentenced to life in prison, possibility of parole in 25 years. Canada. (laughs) 
like 25 years like come That's on the max you can't get any worse in canada eight people mm-hmm. eight i mean he should have got eight 25 year sentences that i agree to be served consecutively that's an option another option is yeah, like, a dangerous old. offender um if you're labeled a dangerous offender they, they gave him the to. best one yeah they gave him the best thing that they could 25 years up for parole. He will be 91 years old when that opportunity for parole comes up, oh, which is too soon. Take a heart attack or something. Hopefully. and it. But if he doesn't, if he ever steps foot outside again, bro, I, it, that's just silly. Mm-hmm. You should not be able to kill eight people in your lifetime and ever step foot outside of a prison again. 100%. I agree. A little step into Bruce's mind and how we possibly got to where we are in the story is that Bruce claimed that he had a hard time growing up due to his father being extra hard on him for being not masculine enough. Sounds like John Wayne Gacy. Oh, yeah, true. But I don't know. When I'm reading this stuff, I'm like, oh, were people hard on you? No, no. Were you self-hating? And I mean, I feel the same way about Gacy. I was just saying there's a parallel there. Totally. Are you going to do that one soon? Yes. I mean, that's a big one. That's a big one. That's and amazing. actually, just a couple of years ago, exciting, they actually identified one of the unidentified victims found in the crawl space. So they're still actively trying to identify some of those remains. That's good. But yeah. Anyway, sorry. Back no. to your story. Word. <laughs> so yeah, his household was highly religious and he grew up in an environment that was dangerous to any kind of homosexuality. He lived in a home and a society that would not endorse, quote, this kind of behavior. It was a different time, so he grew up likely pining after some boys and men and never really feeling safe enough to pursue anything. Bruce had a wife for 25 years before he finally came out to her and left her. Once he left her, he had a rebirth of a new life, for lack of a better term. He was in a bit of a different time and definitely in a different position. He was able to go to gay bars and explore himself a little more. Bruce had stumbled upon a website named Recon that was known for bondage, domination, and stuff like that. You know, BDSM and S&M. He chose to seek out submissive people so that he could live out his dominant fantasies. This obviously went past just a fantasy when he started to kill people. Also, in February 2019, sources confirmed to the Toronto Star that Sergeant Paul Gauthier is facing professional misconduct charges of neglect of duty and insubordination over his handling of the 2016 choking incident for which MacArthur was arrested for but not charged. That was the that was the audio that we listened to earlier. Sure was. Yeah. Yeah. February 6th, 2019, in a letter to his colleagues, Gauthier writes he is being made the, quote, fall guy for police errors in the Bruce MacArthur investigation. I can't argue with that. It doesn't take one guy to botch an investigation. This is the fall guy for huge multiple fuck ups. Yeah. And he's pissed. (laughs) And I don't blame him. No, don't sit down and and be the fall guy. He's not sitting there going, oh, I shouldn't get in trouble. He's saying, fuck you guys. You also did things. Like, we all need to be better. You can never promote real meaningful change unless everybody is on board. Yeah. Unless everybody understands their own accountability. Totally. So. And so what they went with on this guy is that he is alleged to have failed to both videotape the victim's statement and photograph the victim's injuries within 72 hours of the june 20th 2016 incident now the wording of this makes me think like did he do it after 72 hours and then really he's just the fall guy you know but both steps are required by the toronto police policy on domestic violence investigations so did he do it at all I I do I couldn't find that, but again the wording makes me think that it was done. It was just done after the seventy two hours. Okay. So yeah, I don't know what the listeners think, but I think the guy has it right. One fall guy is just ridiculous yeah. in a fuck up this big. Like, holy. Anybody that was anybody that ever touched 
any one of those eight missing person cases needs to be on board. The people on that Houston project, like... That's what I mean. If they touched it in any way, if they were taking tips even, like anything. Anyone who took that Switzerland informant tip. That's right. Anything that was involved here, everybody needs to understand what they could have done better and admit to it. Just take accountability so that you can fix the problem so it doesn't happen again. But, you know, it it is admittedly the most scariest thing that you could ever take accountability for. You know, these are the reasons for multiple lives lost. But, Yeah. yeah, I know. That's why usually there's people of higher status to hold those people accountable. That's right. Yeah, we definitely do have like the groups that investigate it and take it to that next level, and then they take it to that next level when need be. Um, but this took too long. Took too long, yeah. But yeah, no, that's Bruce, a Toronto serial killer who stared police in the face while he murdered eight men, possibly ate some of them, and then planted them. Wow. And that poor man that... I mean, he was just over at his apartment for some BDSM. Yeah, and then he was like, oh my knowing, God. Not knowing that he was his next victim. Yeah. Um, I've seen two survivors do statements and speak out and stuff. One goes by the name Isaac, but mm-hmm. he'll always be darked out, so yeah. you can't see him. But the clip that we listened to, he has done multiple interviews. Yeah. He is all about advocating for being safe when meeting up with partners and yeah i know who you're talking about yeah for sure yeah what a creep so creepy Mm -hmm. so if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends if you don't mind giving us a five-star rating it'll help our show grow you can also find us on facebook and youtube at true crime story podcast where the discussion can continue if you wish to contact us you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Also, check out our new TikTok, where you can find interesting photos and content on all released episodes. I'm Brie. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.